when you meet people in various contexts, do you, like I do, wonder what's, what's this person's story? What has made them who they are today? Here in Acts, we come to the Apostle Paul, formerly um, called Saul predominantly, and get to see from God's perspective who Paul is and who <clears throat> he was and how he became what he is today, how he has become the Apostle uh, Paul, Apostle Saul, whom we um, so are so thankful for, who's written many letters in the New Testament. What, what has made him this? <clears throat> and from God's perspective, we have his words initially to Ananias that he, as we focused on before, is a chosen vessel or an elect. He's been elect by God from the foundation of the world to take on a particular role. And that role is delineated and we, we need to pick it up and see what is said here <clears throat> that we might just have the the general sketch about who Paul is in the most basic terms so that we might be thankful and we might understand who he is presented to be and what he will fulfill even here in the book of Acts. So beginning in verse 15, we look and say that Ananias is told, go for he is a chosen, or as we looked at last time, he's an elect vessel or instrument of mine to do what? That is to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. A fascinating phrase. Some of you in Sunday school will hear it. Carry my name. This is the role of a spokesperson. He is to bear the name as a witness, just as was said in Acts 1.8 to the apostles that they are to carry as authoritative witnesses to the death, to the life, death, and resurrection of Christ Jesus and to publish that name, that glory of Jesus Christ in the nations. This is a spokesperson role, a unique one, <clears throat> though we all have a part or share in the witnessing of the name of God. <clears throat> and we will see here, as it relates to name, <clears throat> it doesn't primarily just mean uh, he says the name of Jesus. It, name typically refers to all the things that God does to make himself known, specifically through his word. So the name refers to all the things related to the Father, Son, and Spirit and his word, and his works, and all of creation. That is what is before us. He is to make known Christ in all that he is as a part of the triune God, and yet uh, the Christ of Israel and of the nations. So this is what he's going to make known. And <clears throat> we notice that three groups of people are specified. We'll just briefly say something about each of them. First, um, I, I'm going to say about it in the, in the order, really. I guess you could flip the last two. It's hard to, hard to distinguish these. But the sons of Israel is the first thing that we'll see even in our text today. That is, Paul, or the apostle, uh, will witness to the Jews 
first and foremost. This is in accordance with the promises that he's made to them. And there will be a witness to them. Um, although there is a, as we learn in Romans 9 through 11, there's a partial hardening on Israel until all of elect ethnic Israel comes into the church uh, of whom they are one with all of us. So the first people that are witness to, sons of Israel, and second, kings. The apostle Paul has been raised up to testify to the kings of other nations. This is an amazing reality that we, we see happening in, in this book of Acts later on. We'll see him witness before kings. But it's just important to recognize that God has decreed that kings, although they can be a pain, are also those who um, are to be spoken to such that they become a grace to the church of God. Paul later would instruct the churches in 1 Timothy 2 that we ought to pray for kings and, and rulers and all those who are in high places such that we can live a quiet and godly life before and in this world, before God and in this world. <clears throat> we further see that it is a historical observation to just say that... Um, as persecution was lifted from kings in the Roman Empire and the gospel has the freedom to be published in a more open and way, it, it, it multiplied and multiplied even exponentially such that by 350 AD, more than half of the Roman Empire proclaims Christ is Lord. Amazing reality that the explosion and expansion of the gospel from the earliest days have, has never stopped. Though we know that not every, everybody who claims the name of Christ is a true believer. None, nonetheless, the dictates of king beco can become like rain on the land if the kings respect the word of Christ. And so this is something we should pray to that end, both for our future president, who is a terrible reprobate currently, and hopefully for a future new, new president, we ought to pray that they would respect and they would be like rain on the land, respecting the word of God and allowing the free publishing of the gospel. Lastly, it is important that we see that Paul is also a chosen vessel to bring the word to the nations. That is, God is sending the gospel to the ends of the earth. And <clears throat> Paul will even later in Galatians 2.8 describe himself as an apostle to the ta ethne, the, the nations. He is an apostle <clears throat> as is foreseen and prophesied in the Old Testament, a, a foreseen and dominant reality that the light of God would go to the nations and the nations would stream to Christ. Now, <clears throat> having said that about his ministry, that's God's perspective on who Paul is and how he becomes what he is. That's how he becomes the apostle. We know that's the reason. His choosing and choosing to be a certain kind of person. <clears throat> but now, 
let us uh, take our camera movie angle and broaden out. If, if you're a movie buff, uh, most movie buffs will insist that the wide-angle lens is the best and the only way to watch movies. Not to cut it off and crop it to a tiny little scene, but to, to have a wide-angle so you can see <clears throat> a, a panoramic view of a scene. Helps you catch the reality of what's being filmed. And in the same way, we need to always be able, in the details of a story, to see what the details mean and the message, and then also to pan out and see what themes are on repeat over and over again to communicate the the broader message of Acts. So in your movie angle lens, step back and just think with me about what's going on in verse 17 and 18 and, and how that relates to the whole thing. Paul is on a mission from Satan to oppose God's church, to oppose Christ himself. And he's nearing the end and he sees the resurrected Lord Christ and is sent into Damascus, but all of everything is turned on its head. Here's what the Lord is doing. You'll know uh, phrases that the Apostle Paul would use later, which is, Um, quoting from Job or Isaiah, that he catches the wise in their craftiness. (laughs) He he takes the the foolishness of men and and makes it the wisdom of God. God has this wonderful way of flipping everything on on its head. And in a way, we could say that the, the intention of Paul for Damascus to be like the site of his first persecutions against the church is, is, is turned around, Damascus reversed, as it were. It is now not the site of the persecution of the church, but metaphorically speaking, it is the place where a foundation stone of the church is cut and laid. Paul himself becomes, as Ephesians 2 says, a foundational stone in the church building, that is erected. It, it is the absolute opposite thing that is the intention of Paul because God seeks to convert him and does. You should see that this is just gloriously how the Lord works. He thwarts the machinations of men and establishes the plans of his own heart. Um, If we're going to put it in like musical terms, this is a a classic case of of putting Acts chapter 4 on repeat to listen again and again and again. You'll know that Acts chapter 4, we have the inspired prayer of the early church concerning what Psalm 2 means. You have an inspired commentary on all of Psalm 2, by the way, as I've showed later. And Psalm 2, as it was prayed, is fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And they pray accordingly like this. And and I hope you hear this theme on repeat in Acts. It's beautiful. That is, they, they pray according to Psalm 2. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, 
Jesus, whom you anointed, that is, he's been made the Christ, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That is, the Lord accomplishes his plan through the sinful actions of men. He doesn't simply scramble with some future knowledge and and seek to turn it for good in that way as it's presented much in the church. No, 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 no. What God does is he ordains, predestines evil actions, himself being sinless, to accomplish what he has prophesied he will do, (laughs) such that the death of Christ, most evil action in the world here is said to be according to the predestined plan of God. He decrees that evil men fulfill his devices. Amazing. Uh, Man cannot thwart the plan of God, neither can the Apostle Paul or uh, the persecutor Saul, as we might call him. And so he's marvelously turned around so as to accomplish all of God's plans for him in his church, because no one can stand against the church of God uh, for Christ is for us. Now, what happens? He is... Verse 17, read it here. Ananias departed and entered the house, laying his hands on him. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. In taking food, he was strengthened. This, in verse 18 here, um, is um, the experience of of conversion, the experience of, of coming to Christ. This is the experience of salvation that each and every one of us has that the the word scales I, I looked it up I, I assumed what it is scales <laughs> um, and uh, in the Septuagint that is the Greek translation of the Old Testament as we've said the LXX as it's abbreviated um, uses just a couple occurrences that scales of a fish in Leviticus and Deuteronomy um, and in context here of course they're not real scales it's just a description about the experience of the supernatural work of God upon the heart in the soul, such that even here, uh, it is certainly the case that he's healed from this temporary judgment of blindness, so that in that sense, it's the removal of scales so that he can actually see again. But we must understand that um, this is joined by Luke, not only with the, the regaining of sight, but also with the being filled of the Holy Spirit. As we said before, the, the, the physical and the spiritual are, are meant to communicate um, the same reality that happens from two different sides. We can't see the spiritual realm. We, can, we can't touch it, taste it. And so God, in His grace such that we might understand what salvation means, 
gives us physical symbols, physical pictures of, of real things that happen, but point to uh, the, the foundational reality that's going on. Salvation gets worked out in two different ways, one in the physical and one in the spiritual. And here, as we see, um, after he regains his sight, uh, he is also simultaneously at, at that time filled with the Spirit and subsequently baptized. He had not only come to the light physically, he can see the sun again, but he has seen the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the eyes of faith. We recognize <clears throat> maybe if we go to, uh, I commend to you a great explanation of this where these two realities are uh, conflated transparently. Uh, conflated is to, to bring, you know, two things and, and to um, have, a, have a mixture of the meanings together. <clears throat> uh, I didn't plan on describing this, so I won't right now. I'll just explain uh, the, the text that I would have you read. I'll just read one section. Um, one, one verse that is, but in John nine, you'll remember this huge famous scene of the man who was born blind and he's healed. And at the end of that, Jesus teaches, I came in the world so that those who see will be made blind and those who are blind shall see. And he doesn't mean this just physically. And that's very clear throughout the whole narrative. And it's so clear that the Pharisees get kind of ticked at him because of it, and they say, um, are, are we also blind? Because they know that's what Jesus is teaching. Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. Paul had been lost in darkness in sin. Despite having been well-educated, knowing, knowing the Old Testament better than us, guaranteed, he was blind to the glory of Jesus. And, and what had happened here and then is an unveiling of that glory such that he sees with the eyes of his heart they have been opened. <clears throat> and as you can tell, this is, as it were, the universal experience of salvation. Now, some are saved so young that they don't remember a time where they were blind in this way. And that is a, I wish that to be <clears throat> the testimony of all of our children. Um, but nonetheless, for most of us, we understand that, that our, it's not our wisdom that has reached up into the heavens and obtained for ourselves salvation. Nor did we find anything in us worthy of God. We were blind at a time in our past and we could specify those things in our own minds that point to we were blind to the rank sinfulness, the, the, the putrid and, and disgusting corruption in our members. Even now in our confession this morning, we think of things that show that we are yet still at points bound by our sinful nature. Though I don't want to say we're, we're lost, that we're not. We have overcome, but we are blind. And 
and what we have been blinded to in the past, most of us in a Western context have been blind to our sinful ideologies such that we say, I'm a, I'm a pretty good person. <laughs> Somebody who says that does not have their eyes open to the message of the glory of the gospel. The only one who is a good person is the holy, holy, holy God. And this one and only God has come down from heaven to take on a true humanity because there is none good, not even one. We need a savior. We need to be saved by a good one. In Christ is the perfect righteousness of God in the flesh. And since we have no righteousness of our own, we have no good works that can attain to God. We are blind. We are bad people. The only way to be saved is to be found in the righteousness of Christ by faith through the Spirit of God. All those who see their sinfulness can trust in Christ. That is what it means to have your eyes opened. We <clears throat> need a righteousness outside of ourselves. All of our testimony, all of us who know Christ is, um, can be summarized in the same way. That is, I was blind to my guilt, my sin. I was blind to the reality of what I deserved. And now I see, and I not only see the sinfulness of myself, I see the glory of my Savior, Jesus Christ. And that is the conversion experience that we all have. <clears throat> and the last element in our text, at least for Paul, is that immediately after experiencing a personal conversion and whereby he believes in Christ, then he puts his faith, uh, or he, after putting his faith in Christ, he immediately then submits himself to Christian baptism. Um, since faith itself is an inward thing and not, ex uh, not experienced by those who are outside of us, uh, therefore there is a, a sign that we are given and compelled to do, that is, believers are compelled to be in initiated or inaugurated into the visible church by a sign of their own obedience, a sign denoting that I am united with Christ in life and in death. I am part of the new covenant in that uh, Paul here is, by his symbol in baptism, says to the rest of the church, and to himself that he has been incorporated into the one people of God through the one body of Jesus Christ by faith. <clears throat> Therefore, he is a full-fledged member of the church. This is his sign, not only for, for himself, but for the whole church, that they might call him brother. They might call him friend. <clears throat> now, let us turn the corner here to verse 20, 21, and 22, and then we'll, um, we'll make a few observations, really one in each verse, and then 
bring that to some doctrinal instruction, and then apply these things. And so this is the rest of the sermon. I'm going to read it just so it's fresh in your mind. Uh, Verse 20, after being with the disciples for some days in Damascus, it says, And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Jerusalem by proving that Jesus was the Christ. The apostle in verse 20 begins not by preaching on the street corners, but rather in the synagogues first. All you who have read through Romans know the refrain to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. This is the pattern in the New Testament. That is, those, uh, those who were called by God and those apostles preached first to the Jews, and then they they turn outward to the rest of the nations that is symbolized in the Greek. So this is the the place that he begins in the synagogues. And the content of his message is that he begins declaring something he was not before. That is, Jesus is the Son of God. Now, we, we have all sorts of thoughts about that. But interestingly enough, in the scriptures, this title itself, the Son of God, is primarily related to his humanity, not not his deity, as we often think of it. Son of man is actually a reference more to his deity um, by the quotations in the Old Testament. Son Son of God, actually, in fact, If you, um, in your spare time, go to Matthew and his gospel in chapter 3 and chapter 4, you have the divine proclamation at the baptism of Jesus. This is my son, son of God, in whom I am well pleased. And this is, of course, what is the fulfillment of John's, John the Baptist's preaching. That is, the Messiah is coming. And he will be revealed to Israel through his baptism. He's going to be made known. So that in chapter 4 of Matthew, when, the, um, when Satan comes to tempt Jesus, he asks him, if you're the son of God, if you're the son of God, if you're the son of God, because it's in reference to his humanity. You, you can also add to that Luke chapter 3. You know, there's two genealogies of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, and the Gospel of Luke. Luke is very helpful because he combines this situation and the temptation in the wilderness and the genealogy by reading backwards from Christ all the way back to Adam and calls Adam the Son of God. And then proceeds to say, well, the Son of God was tempted in the wilderness, just like Adam was tempted. You see, the whole story of redemption is that the son of God, Adam, failed. So God sent his very own son. 
He sent a new son of God to succeed in everything that the first Adam failed. We needed a second Adam to pick us up from our fallen estate. So this is who Christ is, the son of God. That is the Messiah, synonymous term. And what's the response? I mean, can you imagine? I, it's hard for me to imagine, but can you imagine how strongly this, this like, this contrast, this juxtaposition would be for those who are hearing the preaching of Paul. He was so well known for his persecutions, and now he's preaching the message of Jesus in your synagogue. I can't, I can't imagine even being there. And I think John Calvin, as I read this week, said it so beautifully. I just quote him. He says, seeing the zeal of Paul against the gospel was openly known, they, that is those who are hearing, they saw no other cause of a sudden change but the hand of God. And therefore, this is one of the fruit of the miracle that they all wonder at him being made a new man so suddenly that his doctrine doth the more move their minds. (laughs) He is... A, a brand new person, a, a totally new creature, as we know, created in Christ Jesus. And so this this response is just marveling and, and going, well, look what this man was. What, what has changed this? But it must be Christ and his, the truth that he is the son. <clears throat> Lastly, we observe, and this is where I want to turn it into doctrinal instruction and application. In verse 22, there's amazing observation to be had. That is, Saul increased all the more in strength. And <clears throat> in order to know what that actually means, not strength of food, which he took previously, but rather strength so that he might confound the Jews by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Uh, The explanation of this is that the apostle Paul um, himself made progress. He, He made strides and increased in his ability to confute, confuse and confound with his message, the Jews. He was an extremely learned man. We, we understand later that he was um, learned at the feet of Gamaliel, the respected teacher that we had encountered before. But he himself went through growth as a preacher. <laughs> it's amazingly encouraging to me. Uh, it stands as a great encouragement, I hope, to all of us that he's not converted into full maturity. He himself has to undergo a process whereby his abilities to see and understand the doctrine of Christ in all the scriptures um, is one that's not fully formed. It takes time and effort and sanctification and work in order for him to be able to lay out a logical case to prove Christ before the sons of Israel and demonstrate their errors in rejecting him, he has to labor. He has to work. He has to have work done in him. And therefore, we should recognize how this operates doctrinally for us. 
That is, we recognize that we must undergo a process of being strengthened in our abilities to understand the testimony to Jesus Christ as the Son of God in the Bible. Uh, And this working is what is meant by sanctification. This is a, a central aspect of you being made more into the likeness of Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be sanctified? Well, the catechism says that sanctification is a work of God's free grace, wherein he, he, uh, whereby we are renewed in the whole man and made after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die into sin and live unto righteousness. <clears throat> And, and what is part of that righteousness? What is that renewal in us? What does, it, what does it look like to have the image of God reformed in us? What's it include? Well, here we see what it is in Paul, and we could go to Colossians 1.9 and read this. Paul, praying for the Colossians, says, We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with all knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom so, that, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, f- fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Increasing in the knowledge of God. Our minds through the sanctifying work of the Spirit are are made to more fully know God so that we might fully live for God. And those two things can't be taken apart. The reason people stay in immaturity is because those two realities are separated. That is, they don't increase in the knowledge of God. So they can't increase in their actions. Towards God. The reason, sadly, you'll see Christians later in life floundering or immature in their, in their expression of the Christian faith is in, in, can be explained in large measure, and it depends on the person, in large measure because they don't know God very well. They have not pressed into their sanctification in this aspect. And so I want to give you three exhortations to duty and application. The first is that we as a people ought to actively and attentively listen to the preaching of God's word here. And we must understand that the goal of our listening is to hear the content of of the truth about who God is or who we are or whatever the specific thing is from specific places in the Bible so that we would be able to say that the doctrine of election is taught in Acts chapter 9. (laughs) That we would be able to say specifically who God is and who he's been revealed to be. Jesus as the Son of God. I know that is Acts 9. And you should be able to demonstrate those things. If you were pressed, 
We ought not to come mainly to listen to feel good. Okay? That is not the goal. Personal peace is not the goal of the sermon. The pers- that, that is a, a byproduct of knowing God. It is the fruit of seeing His glory and His grandeur and His awesome nature. Further, we need to be listening for not only for the content, because it's the content believed that changes you. It, that, that's what changes you. You have the most dull preacher in the world, and if he is preaching the truth of the Scriptures, you will be transformed. It is not in rhetoric or in those things, as much as those are nice. Nonetheless, our goal is to hear true content from the scriptures and listening so that our actions might be informed according to what we know God is. If we leave the assembly, say it this way, if we leave the assembly not knowing what to do, then we have not grasped the meaning of what the scriptures say. If you don't know what to do with the information, you don't know the scriptures. Let me prove this. Super simple. The example in our text is the truth of Christ, rightly understood by Saul, is that he needs to now trust that Jesus is the Son of God. He demonstrates that he understands the truth by repenting of his persecution. He doesn't do it anymore. He understands it because he submits to Christian baptism and then is immediately preaching a different message, the message of the gospel. If he didn't do any of these things, he would not have understood. He wouldn't have understood the meaning of the scriptures. You you can go, yeah, I know that I'm supposed to submit to my husband. And then when you don't do it, hon, can you go do this for me? and you stomp your feet and you don't want to do it, you don't understand the scriptures. You don't believe them. And husbands, it's the same way. If you turn around and you don't live with your wife in an understanding way, proves you don't understand the message. Your life betrays your unbelief. And that's what we have to work on daily. Gosh, the things that we know... (laughs) are supposed to be worked out further in your work, in your reading. If you're not reading your Bible every day, every day, you're in sin. You don't understand the scriptures. We must press into the knowledge we have lest we practice vain religion. God is pleased with us hearing and putting our work, his word to work in our lives. It is the case that we ought to be putting time. It's so hard. (laughs) There's so much. The Bible is really small in one sense, and it's really big in another sense. Like God could have said, I feel like so much more. How many times are you reading the scripture? You're like, man, I want like five more chapters on this, (laughs) on this. And he's really brief in one sense. But it is really, it takes a lot of hard work 
takes grinding day in and day out, morning in, evening in, family worship every day, personal devotions every day to start to comprehend these things. It takes work at the grindstone. And if you don't put the work in, you don't understand the gospel. You don't understand the message fully. That doesn't mean you're not saved. Just means that you have not comprehended what it means to know Christ. And that's always a work in progress for us. It's always a work. Now, here's another exhortation that I don't give all the time, but I think I'd like to, which is we have great personal limitations, myself and all of us really. And there is a, a reality that the scriptures are, are big and they're hard to put together at times. And so what I want to encourage each one of you to do is the 1689 that that your elders have handed out to you. I want you to say that this is the the pastoral exhortation for you to obey this. This is an application. Like, if you have a hard time sometimes with my application, you need to figure out where it falls in an application scale, whether it's good, it's better, or it's best. If you can think of a better one than this, then, then you do that. But you, what you can't do is be disobedient to the truth of the scriptures, which is we need to work hard at putting the knowledge of God in our minds. And due to our limitations, we ought to have help. That's why you actually have a pastor or pastors, excuse me, three of them. That's why you have pastors so that they can help you go, okay, no, this is what the word means and counsel you that way. But you also, as you press in, I suggest to you and give you a pastoral exhortation that each day take an extra five minutes in whether it be family worship or it be your personal devotions. You should be doing both if you have a fan, if you have more than one person in the home. And if it's just you, then just personal devotions, uh, as we've explained Take, take an extra five minutes and read one, one paragraph of this every day. You, you could read the whole thing. And if you're super slow as a reader, I think it would take me like an hour and a half or two hours to read through the whole thing. Um, you should do that one, once a day, one paragraph, just like we confess today. Take one and be strengthened in all the different areas. What, does, what do we believe? What do the churches believe? about the word of God or who Christ is or how he acts as a mediator or the law of God and how that applies to the Christian life or um, what is the, the final state of humanity? What, what is the future judgment and all these sorts of things that you can find. I think 32 chapters and day by day, just plot away and grow in those and you'll have scripture references to follow out if you so choose to. So what I'm going to encourage you to do is for your future growth in the scriptures, one aspect is the sermon on a Sunday. <clears throat> and another aspect is your, your personal and your family devotional life. And uh, third is to add something that is, is good and solid and has uh, stood the test of time and, and have multiple streams 
of grace coming in. Have multiple streams of the word uh, in order that you might be helped in your growing in the knowledge of Christ. And the outflow of that is that the knowledge of Christ will be demonstrated in your action. You will be the the fruitful person, the the blessed person. You will experience um, personal peace and um, and many of the other things that we want to be filled with, all manner of good works and so forth. But because this is difficult, let us turn to the Lord and ask him to do this in our midst.